We're in George Eliot country around Nuneaton and Bedworth in North Warwickshire. I'm Jane Markham, and with the help of local historian and George Eliot fan, John Burton, and others we meet on our drive, we're going to be piecing together the early life of one of Britain's greatest novelists. The drive skirts the Arbury estate, where her father, Robert Evans, was estate manager to the Newdigate family. We're going to be ending up at Griff, where she grew up, but our first stop is Chilvers Coton, where she was baptised Mary Ann Evans in 1819. Maps and leaflets are available, by the way, at the library, but here we are. Chilvers Coton Craft Centre on Avenue Road, opposite the church, and in the summer months, you can have a cup of coffee in the cafe here to set you up for your drive. The students of King Edward VI, Sixth Form College in Nuneaton, directed by English teacher Beef Wood, uh, they're preparing for a performance based on George Eliot's fiction, and we're going to be hearing more of their work in progress a little later. But first, let's join John Burton on a guided tour. We're outside the door of the craft centre, we're facing the road, and we're looking at the old stone building in front of us. It is one of the oldest complete buildings in the town, actually. Uh, this end, I mean, I love that window at this end. Ignore the brick bit 1950s garbage on the side. But, you know, that window is lovely. Uh, it is now a listed building. It was one of the very early schools in Nuneaton, and it was provided by Lady Newdigate in about 1735. So there is the George Ellick connection because of, of Arbury Hall and the fact that Mary Ann... Mary Ann's father worked on the estate and was the agent for, for Mr. Newdigate. So 1735, this was built as, as the little school for um, poor children in the, in the parish of Chilvers Coton, not Nuneaton, Chilvers Coton. And at the other end of it was the mistress's house. And in Amos Barton, at the end where Millie Barton is dying, the mistress from the school comes across to the uh, vicarage to see if there's anything she can do to help. Amos Barton is the first story in Scenes of Clerical Life, George Eliot's first work of fiction, published in 1857, and the 150th anniversary of that, of course, celebrated in 2007. Many of the characters in the story were based on real people. In this case, Amos Barton and his wife Millie were the Reverend John Gwither and his wife Emma, and 20 years before she wrote the story, George Eliot had been a bridesmaid here at her sister's wedding, the Reverend Gwither officiated. He is pretty useless, her old Amos Barton, and he's not the vicar. He's the curate, and he has to live and look after his wife and five children and another one on the way on £80 a year. So he's always in debt, he's always having to borrow money or hope that he can be given a bit of money by the patron up at Arbury, you know, or that the butcher will give him credit... And the parishioners don't really much like him because he's not a sparkling character and he tends to be a bit gauche, really. Uh, and yet he's married to this lovely woman, Millie. Amos himself, well, he could be summed up as selfish, thoughtless, even boring. But George Eliot draws us in. Kathleen Adams, for 40 years the secretary of the George Eliot Fellowship. She really understood people, and that's why her characters are so marvellous, because she understood all the frailties of human nature, and she's never really hard on any of them. She understood why they were behaving as they did, and I think that's what made her such a great novelist, that she was very humane and very understanding. 
There's a pedestrian crossing just up the road, and then you can go into the churchyard and round to the church door at the foot of the tower. The church was badly damaged during the Second World War, but the tower and the clock fortunately survived. And these are her opening words of Amos Barton. Shepperton Church was a very different-looking building five and twenty years ago. To be sure, its substantial stone tower looks at you through its intelligent eye, the clock, with the friendly expression of former days, but in everything else, what changes? And, of course, she's referring to all those changes, not only in the structure of the building, but in the religious approach, the coming of the evangelicals and so on. And that's the same clock, the intelligent eye. Well, as we've intimated, Millie, Amos's long-suffering wife, dies young, worn out by constant childbearing and scrimping and saving. She does bend the facts, of course, and the Reverend Gwither, in fact, survived for a long time and, and uh, a few years later actually wrote to George Eliot and said that he was a bit upset <laughs> by her treatment of him, you know. A bit careless of her. She could have checked in Crockford's first, really, couldn't she, <laughs> to see whether he was still around. Anyway, he was, and, and this is his wife's tombstone which is, you know, it's marvellous. You can read the book and you, you've been here. It used to have railings round it and, of course, the yew tree has grown. And I, they really, I think, they ought to have chopped that down years ago. The clue to finding this tomb is it's under the huge yew tree close to the tower. George Eliot's parents, Robert and Christiana Evans, are buried here too. To find that grave, you'll need to walk a little further into the graveyard, bearing round to the left. And then further still to the south is the memorial to her brother Isaac, who was memorably the model for Maggie's brother Tom in the mill on the floss. My big brother, he could do, oh, so many things. He could throw a stone right to the centre of a ripple in a pond. He could guess to a fraction how many lengths of a stick it would take to reach across the playground. He could draw almost perfect squares without any measurements. He could draw really well. Maggie Tulliver from the King Edwards College production, a character, of course, based on George Eliot herself, then known as Mary Ann Evans. She idolised her brother, and they were very close until Isaac found out that uh, she was living with a married man, and that was unacceptable to his deeply rooted Victorian values. And it was an estrangement that sadly lasted for 20 years. She lived openly with George Henry Lewis. She was ostracised by society and, of course, by her own family who disowned her. And it wasn't until she was really famous that, that people began to invite her to dinner. They didn't want to know her before she became George Eliot. But once she became famous, of course, they forgave a lot of things. And when she eventually married properly to John Walter Cross at the end of her life, even her family took her back. She'd obviously been made an honest woman at last. Before we leave here, there is a link to the second of the stories in Scenes of Clerical Life, Mr Gilfeld's love story. It starts with him as an elderly man who, who will be based here at the vicarage over there. He ministers both to here, Chilverscoten, and also to Astley, or Nebley, as it's called. And then, from then onwards, the story is a flashback to him as a young man. As a, as a very young man, as a young chaplain, the chaplain to Arbury Hall or Cheverell Manor. So, time to get on the road and see some of those places. You want to turn right out of the car park and follow the brown tourist signs to Arbury Hall. And you're heading out of town, eventually picking up the Arbury Road, on which is the next landmark to look out for, the impressive gatehouse of Arbury Hall.
Now, George Eliot knew Arbury well, and if you're lucky enough to have timed your drive for the Sunday or Monday of the summer bank holidays, you can visit the hall, which is privately owned by the descendants of the Newdigate family and has recently become a family home again. Kathleen Adams has known the hall for many years too. I got to know it through George Eliot, of course, and, and was overwhelmed by the beauty of the building because it really is quite fascinating. Now that it's a home instead of a sort of a museum, it's even lovelier because it feels lived in, feels loved. It has its pluses and minuses, that, because it means people can visit it less often. Well, of course, yes. Obviously, they don't want tourists tramping through the rooms they live in very frequently, so it isn't open very often. But the George Eliot Fellowship organises tours in conjunction with Nuneaton and Bedworth Borough Council, and so people are able to get in to see it. George Eliot chose to set Mr Gilfell's love story at Arbury during the time that the Elizabethan manor was undergoing renovations, adding the Gothic frontage that is still there today. The Gothicisation of Arbury is very fresh in the memories of people involved in the story. And so the man who has done it, who was Roger, Sir Roger uh, Newdigate, uh, is, is still present in the story and, and refers to those wonderful ceilings that if you've been to Arbury you know all about. And George Eliot knew about them because when her mother died and she had to return home from school to look after the family, the Newdigate family allowed her the run of Arbury's library and she took in not only the books but her surroundings as well. Oh, she knew what she was doing, and, and her command of English is so good, of course. And she had a very observant eye and a wonderful memory, the fact that she can describe Arbury Hall so so accurately all those years later shows what a very observant person she was. You can go with your copy of scenes in your hand and you can go from room to room on the tour, and she's describing what there is in front of you. It's quite uncanny. Anyway, we've got this young man, Mr Gilfield, the Reverend Gilfield, acting as chaplain to the house. And also being brought up in the house is a young ward, um, a beautiful young girl called Katerina. The heir to the estate is one Captain Wybrow, who is a bit of a rogue, you know, and, and toys with Katerina's affections. And she falls in love with him and is heartbroken when she realises his true intention is to marry another girl from an appropriate family. For how it turns out, you'll have to read the story. But on to Astley Church, the other church in the tale. Just past the gates of Arbury Hall, be ready to take the first left, signposted to Fulongley and Meriden. And we're into leafy rural Warwickshire now, past Seaswood Pool and on into the village of Astley. At the crossroads, you want to take the right turn into Nuthurst Lane and a hundred yards or so up there, you'll see a nursery school. Turn right there and you've got to Astley Church. The church is open on the first Saturday morning of every month. Now, in Mr Gilfeld's love story, this is Nebley, and the tumble-down ruin behind it is referred to as Nebley Manor. The church was once much bigger than it is today, and in what is now the nave, but was the original chancel, there are some beautiful medieval choir stalls with painted apostles, or more likely prophets, mentioned in the story. 
but I don't know why I'm struggling to describe it, when George Eliot brings it to life a million times better. George Eliot says, You already suspect that the vicar did not shine in the more spiritual functions of his office, and indeed the utmost I can say for him in this respect is that he performed those functions with undeviating attention to brevity and dispatch. It's wonderful, isn't it? Absolutely marvellous. He had a large heap of short sermons, rather yellow and worn at the edges, from which he took two every Sunday, securing perfect impartiality in the selection by taking them as they came without reference to topics. And having preached one of these sermons at Shepperton in the morning, he mounted his horse and rode hastily with the other in his pocket to Nebley, which is here, of course, uh, where he officiated in a wonderful little church. So you get the description then of, of as, as we're looking at it now. Wonderful little church with a chequered pavement which had once rung to the iron tread of military monks with coats of arms in clusters on the lofty roof, marble warriors and their wives without noses occupying a large proportion of the area, and the twelve apostles with their heads very much on one side holding didactic ribbons painted in fresco on the walls. Here, in an absence of mind to which he was prone, Mr. Guilford would sometimes forget to take off his spurs before putting on his surplice, <laughs> and only become aware of the omission by feeling something mysteriously tugging at the skirts of that garment as he stepped into the reading desk, which is just behind us here. <laughs> it's wonderful, isn't it? It really is lovely, but very loving, you know. I mean, he's, as I said, he, 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 cuts, he cuts the clergyman off at the knees, really, this... this totally relevant sermon that is just on the pile and yet they all love him and that's the way that's the country way and standing here nothing has changed has it nothing has changed no apart from the introduction of electricity yes if this was the chancel then the original nave would have gone, gone right, down right down there that's right yes there was a much bigger tower which which collapsed but it was a sort of they called it the lantern of arden so that it could be seen, you know, because this is the edge of the Art Forest of Arden, of course. Um, and it would have been, it was a sort of monastic training school, really, um, hence the size of it. And you can see when you look up above, well, we're now at the end of the, between the nave and the, and, and the chancel, as it is now, and that bit dates from some restoration work and rebuilding work in about 1606, something like that. But then looking right up, you can see how the original huge window there has been bricked in, filled in. And there are a lot of the nudigates, of course, are, are, are buried here. It's one of, it's one of the... Although they, they would worship at Chilwood's Coat, and they would also worship here, and several of them are buried. And Robert Evans's first wife, actually, is buried here as well. So there are all sorts of, you know, George Eliot connections, apart from the references to it in Mr Gilfield's love story. The inscription to Harriet Evans is on the bottom of the Newdigate Memorial to the right of the altar. Robert Evans was obviously an important person on the Newdigate estate. He had come down from, from uh, Derbyshire with uh, Francis Parker when Francis Parker inherited the estate and took over the estate and changed his name to Newdigate. He was a, a distant cousin. And he insisted that when he came to Arbury, he would bring Robert Evans with him as the as his agent, you know, because he was they, he trusted him. And being an agent to an estate was a sort of job where if you were on the fiddle, you could fiddle big time, you know. So he wanted somebody who could he trust. He wanted somebody he could trust, and he did trust him from when he was up in in in, in Derbyshire at Kirk Hallam. Um, and uh, I think Robert had had married Harriet up in in Kirk Hallam. And, and clearly they were so, they were so um, well, good friends, I suppose, as well as being an employer, that, that, um, that her memorial is put onto one of the Newdigate tombs. That's a real honour, isn't it? 
uh, and a sign of the respect, really, that the Newdigates had for, for Robert Evans. Our next stop is the Astley Book Farm, something George Eliot would probably have approved of. So it's back to the car, drive back down to the crossroads, this time go straight across. The book farm is a mile or so down on the left. You'll see the signs. Sarah Exley is co-owner of the Astley Book Farm. We're just on the edge of the estate, actually. Uh, in fact, I think Astley Lane is the is the border, as far as I, as far as I know. George Eliot would probably have loved this place if I she'd lived there. I think George now. Eliot probably came here at one time <laughs> or another. I think, I'm not the expert on this. I think she had some relative live in the in the house actually that's on the, on the land. Yeah. And and how long have you been open as a as a bookshop? We've been open for three and a half years now, but we have been trading on the internet for about six years, just over six years. And how many books do you have? Well, we're not exactly sure. <laughs> we don't count them every day. Uh, Sixty to 65,000, something like that. Plus probably 15,000 in containers on the car park. Right. <laughs> and it rambles on through all the old farm buildings. <laughs> it, it does, and we've got, uh, well, all the original beams, um, lots of original features such as milking parlour bits and bobs. <laughs> and all your beams are, are absolutely crammed with books as, as well. Well, we, yeah, we sort of use them as a bit of a decorative feature, but although occasionally I do get up on the counter and uh, reach one down for somebody. <laughs> right next to your, uh, your desk, your, yes. your, your, your front desk, which is piled with books, which exactly. is great. Exactly. You've got your, your George Eliot yep. feature. I mean, I, I suppose you would have to have a good selection of George well, Eliot. We, well, when we first started selling here, we thought we needed to have her as a bit of a feature. Um, and we've, we have concentrated on sort of trying to make sure we have got a good range of, obviously, her fiction, but also uh, plenty of books about George Eliot, uh, criticism, etc., etc. So we do try and keep it fairly stocked up, but it's it's actually not that easy. Um, so if anybody has got any George Eliot, <laughs> they want to. <laughs> and a bit further down, um, I know that you've got a rather special... A special cabinet. We've got a we've got a special cabinet, and we have a couple of uh, special items in there. We've got a uh, first edition Mill on the Floss. Ah, in, uh, in two volumes. Is in it? three volumes. Oh, it three, is yes. actually uh, eighteen sixty. It has actually been rebound, and then we also have a first edition of the Spanish Gypsy, which is in a lovely leather binding. Beautiful things to have. People collect books. Uh, like that, just just for, because they're like that, they're they like do. That, yes. Yeah, they do. And we we have lots of people come in and they say, "I'm looking, I'm looking for a book for a present, and I would really like a really nice leather binding." They're probably not going to buy a first edition Spanish Gypsy because of that, but <laughs> because they are pretty expensive. Uh, the mill on the floss the comes in. The mill on the floss is four hundred and ninety-five pounds. How do you go about working out how much they're worth? We price based on the internet these days. There is so much business done on the internet with people buying books. You can buy virtually any book you would ever want to buy on the internet. And so we base our pricing on that. And because we sell on there, then obviously, you know, we have to, pay, we have to price fairly. You don't have all your books on the internet, surely? We don't. We would be here day and night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week if we were going to do that. And some books it just isn't, it's just not worth doing it for. Um, so about a quarter of our stock we have listed on the internet. And of course you come here to somewhere like this, it, it, you can't get a feel for the books on the internet, no, whereas exactly. you can here on all your shelves. Exactly, the internet is a fantastic tool if you know exactly what you want, but it's not so good if you're just you know, interested in a subject and you want to read round it, for example, or you, know, you can just come in and browse and something will catch your eye. 
And often people just walk in and they don't, they, they might be looking for something specific, but by the time they go out, then they've got an armful of something completely different. <laughs> and so to our final destination, Griff House. We're taking a left out of the book farm uh, and look out for a left turn at the Cowleys Nursing Home into what, in fact, is Bedworth Lane. This takes you on a wiggly ride and it becomes more built up as we reach the outskirts of Bedworth. Stick with this when you get to a T-junction, take a left turn and go underneath the A444, following signs to Nuneaton. And this will put you on the road to Griff. In fact, it runs parallel to the main road. You're looking out for the Beef Eater restaurant on your left just before you get to the main roundabout. It's just after Griff Lane. Take a left into the car park. Her father was agent to the Newdigate family, and so she was born in a farmhouse on the estate. But when she was four months old, they moved to another house, still on the Arbury estate, Griff House, and she stayed there until she was 20. And that is no longer as you've probably realised, part of the estate. And when the A444 road was built, it cut it off from the estate and the house was put up for sale. And at that time, the George Elliott Fellowship would have loved to have inherited it. And it was, a, it was sold for about £20,000, but we hadn't got anything like that, of course. And then there was all the upkeep. So it slipped through our fingers and we lost it, which is a great pity because it would have made a lovely George Elliott Museum. But Griff House is at least still accessible to us because it's a restaurant and hotel. But how much would George Eliot recognise today? She would have recognised uh, most of it, actually. The, the farm, the Griff, that she, that she knew is still here. And if we walk round to the, to the left you can, and, and look up at the window, you can see the attic window, and she refers to the attic window as a child in Mill on the Floss. 21 years in the Neeson, in an old farmhouse called Griff House. The voice of the older George Eliot in the King Edwards College show. We had four acres of garden, and I can still remember the roses... Dear old Griff still smiles at me, and I still seem to feel the air through the window of my attic, my bedroom, my haven. And actually from the car park, as you look over to the left, the top attic window, <laughs> that is the window. And then if, you go, if we go round to the front, there's the front door, and there's still, above the front door, there's a, a stone that says George Eliot lived here, um, 1820 really till uh, 1841 the the rooms inside are still they've obviously been converted into uh, parts of the pub but it is the pub area there uh, and it's perfectly possible to go in and sit in one of the little corners there and imagine that uh, Marianne was uh, bustling round you know checking that the cheese had been made properly or uh, and, and of course she had to do that when she towards towards the end of their time here when her mother died in 1836 Poor old Mary Ann had to come back and leave school and, and, and help run the farm. And it was real hands-on experience, you know. Clever as she was, she had to get her hands dirty and, and help run the farm, sort things out, help her father. Um, uh, and uh, quite a responsible job, I would have thought. And it was here at Griff that she would have been casting her novelist's eye over the events and characters in her everyday life. One can identify so many of them. Not all of them. There have been people in the past and even nowadays who try to identify absolutely everybody with a local person. And it's just not so. But some of them are identifiable and she didn't try to hide them. So I don't think she would have minded that people recognised them. Certainly not her aunts. I mean, we don't know that her aunts were exactly like the ones in the mill on the floss, but... Um... What ails Sister Pullet? Dear me, Sister Glegg, I don't know. But the dinner won't be ready till half past one. If it's too long for you to wait, let me fetch you a cheesecake and a glass of wine. Well, Bessie, 
They're all based on her mother, Christiana's sisters. <laughs> what the family thought of it, I don't know. You was never brought up in that way. I think possibly there was, a, there was a feeling that there might not quite have been a social match, you know, between Robert Evans and Christiana. They, the, the, the Pearson family were considered themselves pretty well to do, I think, out at, I think they were out at Falongley. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they're unforgettable, those characters, really, aren't they? It's all about, like, individuality. Like, I, I'm, I play one of the aunts, and all the aunts are different. So, and that's... They might have similar lines, but, like, you've got the bossy one, and then you've got the timid one. So it's all... All the parts are really good. Whether they're small or big, they've all got, like, um, individuality, so it's good. To think that this was written so long ago, and we can actually understand the language and understand what she's going on about. So it's actually quite modern. And how are they interpreting Maggie Tulliver, the young Marianne Evans, and the famous George Eliot? If you look at the contrast between young Maggie Maggie, well, well, young George Eliot, as she is portrayed as Maggie Tulliver, and then the contrast between how she's um, seen as an older woman, you've got to kind of be the calm, dignified woman who, you know, deserves the respect, who's done the studying, who is influential and fantastic. But you've got to keep the, the fact that she was this wonderful, um, bright, tempestuous girl when she was younger. You know, you've got to kind of incorporate them together because you can't forget that she was this amazing lovely girl who everybody loved you know it's she wasn't just a brilliant writer she was a lovely person i think her love of the countryside and her understanding of of country people and country ways comes from those 21 years spent at griff where she was in the center of this admittedly a sort of I suppose now we'd call it an upper-middle-class family, you know, because her father was professionally involved and highly respected, but in constant contact with the ordinary working people, the ribbon weavers and the miners, as well as the farm workers on the estate. And she just has such an uncanny ear um, for that. It, it still comes across as fresh and natural, doesn't it, 150 years later? It's quite extraordinary ability, really. And that completes our drive in George Eliot country. If you fancy a walk in the town centre, then there's a companion piece to this podcast looking at George Eliot's Nuneaton. I'm Jane Markham, and this is a Podcats production for Enjoy Warwickshire.